Welcome to the Bedrock Podcast. Please pardon the background noise, we are pretty much recording in a garage. Today we are discussing officer promotions and assignments. If you have any comments or would like to ask follow-up questions, visit us at doverspark.org. Enjoy the listen. Dover Air Force Base is Major Joseph Pierce back with podcast number two coming to you from Bedrock. Again, we have Carl Safranek here to talk a little bit about uh, his uh, visit with the AFPC commander and some of the hot rocks that uh, they shared with him. One of the advantages to going down to the MAF-DT isn't just taking the time to dig through records and, and vector where various officers go next, uh, but you have the chance to talk to the AFPC commander and a lot of the staff members down there work in various programs. So we had the opportunity to talk directly with the AFPC commander and he gave us some of the hot rocks that AFPC is working on. One of which was the developmental categories that the chief of staff had rolled out and and how we need to develop our airmen for the Air Force that we need. And, And we were able to get a breakout session on that later. He went through talent marketplace and the need for a more modern, transparent and agile system that quite frankly just gives gaining and losing commanders more involvement. Uh, and we've actually got all the officers up on Talent Marketplace right now, with the exception of, of JA. We ended up getting a briefing later on by uh, on Air Force officer instructor and recruiter duty and how that process works and some of the things that they're looking for. Um, and then he went into the civilian hiring process and how some of it's behind, but changes that they're making to improve that either by adding more staff or breaking it into more functional based categories than base based categories. Uh, He really emphasized with the commanders though the need to get the RPAs, the request for personal action in, as well as using some of the authorities we have such as the direct hiring authority. What was interesting is after he gave a quick overview and before we had a chance to get the briefings, um, he gave the wing commanders a chance to just ask questions of him. Uh, And probably one of the the first questions out of the shoot was how VPC has been an absolute bear and it it slows the process down. The, The bad news is um, that system is not going to necessarily get any better. And one of the reasons is they're coming up with a newer system. So they've stopped kind of investing in that system in order to put their time, money, and energy into a better system. And we should see that system within the next year or so. And then, and then one of the great things that he emphasized at the end was all wing commanders have a hotline number that, where they can call him directly and ask various questions or work various issues. So if there is some sort of bureaucracy that somebody's caught up in, it's a great way to go direct. Um, and, and without using that hotline, uh, I did email him yesterday on a civilian issue that, that we're able to go direct and get some feedback from him and some answers versus working our way through the standard bureaucracy. So is there any, uh, any discussion on deployments and how we're managing those in the three, specifically the 365 deployments? He did. They, they ended up giving a briefing on uh, the 365 policy guidance. The, the good news on that is previously there were, there were about 1,800 uh, 365 deployments in the Air Force. With the constant review that they've done and the need to break those down to not being full 365s to the max extent possible, the Air Force is now down to about 310 365 uh, deployments for lieutenant colonels and senior master sergeants and, and below. That breaks out to about 167, excuse me, 176 uh, 365s for officers and about 134 
for enlisted. Uh, by far, the majority are to Afghanistan and Qatar. Um, you're talking probably over 200, two-thirds of those being just to those two locations. Um, some other good news is um, they're able to fill, when we look at some of the numbers, about 88% of the FY19 was sourced with volunteers. So out of that 310, you're only talking about 40 that were non-vols. The majority were volunteers. And as they're looking at FY20, about 65 have already been sourced and, and filled. So they're, they're trying to do a lot of things to encourage people um, to volunteer, such as, such as an a, a advanced assignment afterwards. If you volunteer for a 365 and you've got 24 months time on station, uh, it allows you to kind of have an idea of where you're going to be going in the future. And they try to match you up as much as possible. If they can't get you an exact assignment, they try to get you something like it. So if you say, hey, I, I really want to go to Del Rio, Texas to be a, a T1 instructor and they can't get you Del Rio, Texas as a T1 instructor, then they may send you to Vance as a T1 instructor. If you say, hey, my follow-on assignment, I'd really like to go to Dover to fly the C-17, they may say, hey, we, we have no availability in that cycle, but we can get you McGuire in the C-17. Uh, so they're doing their best to try to, to match up assignments with that advanced assignment. Um, and they can, they can do so looking forward as far as two years in advance, and they can even load your assignment 16 months in advance to make that happen. Uh, the other thing that they're, they're trying to do with the 365s is the Air Force A3 has a policy where if you deploy for 45 days or more, they try not to task you for another five years for something like a 365. Now granted, there's certain needs of the Air Force, there's certain niche career fields out there. Not everything's perfect, but once again, it's the targets for the things that they're trying to, to get after. Um, the hard part is the non-vol process it does start 180 days prior. And they try to have the first non-vol selected by 165 days prior to that person having to be there. Uh, the reality is with seven-day ops and, and medical clearances and everything else, sometimes those don't go the way as planned, and then people find out 16 days prior instead of 160 days prior. Do they have any possible process changes on in works for trying to reduce the amount of short notice 365s? Um, I don't think there's a process change, and, and this is a really hard nut to crack, because I do reclamas in our wing, and, and it seems like at least every month, if not every other week, I get a reclama request. Hey, we were tasked for such and such. We had so-and-so lined up for it. Uh, they just became medically disqualified. We now need to reclama them. We can't fill it with someone else based on vacancies or whatever else it is. So then it, it gets tasked to someone else. So unless you can predict all the broken legs, medical disqualifications, pregnancies, um, somebody getting out for some sort of reason, then it's it's tough to tell. Now the one thing that they did do was really, really foot stomp to people, and this particular the commanders. Hey, if, if you've got somebody lined up for this, great. If you don't, the sooner that you can communicate that, the better. Um, just because you're given seven days or just because you're given a month or two months or whatever, don't wait until the last minute. Uh, let people know sooner because there's someone else depending on that answer coming sooner. Sir, I've, I've got two questions about the 365s. The first one is, you said we went from around 1,800 to around 300. 
did we truly delete 1500 365s or are those just remote tours now or do we now have 3000 six month deployments that that folks are going on so so yes and no um what they did with a lot of these is exactly what you said they realized that a 365 was very difficult on families so some of those they split into two uh, 180 deployments because six months is easier than a year. So some of those went that way. Some of them were replaced by a contractor. Some of them were just straight up eliminated. I can tell you the position that I last deployed to, um, when I left, no one replaced me. It was, we went from an office of three to an office of two. And that was just a way of, of making things happen. Um, and then I can tell you there were some significant changes made in, in particular to the mobility career field. So the Air Mobility Division Chief down there talking to the CFAC was asked that very question. Hey, as we look at what we can get rid of, what we can source out to contracting, what we can have a civilian do, what we can do even home station or back in the States versus deployed, uh, give me some options. And the AMD Chief at the time put out a couple of COAs and his third COA in some ways he thought I think was more of a throwaway COA. He said, I need to keep a small staff for deployed to interact with everyone else. But he said, a lot of the coordination I do from an AMD standpoint is done with Scott. And it's on the central time zone, not the time zones over in IED. Uh, so he said, the reality is I could bring back almost the entire AMD and put it at Shaw. Still a deployment, but it's a deployment stateside and it's a deployment to Shaw instead of halfway around the world. Uh, and so they moved almost the majority, if not the entire part of the AMD to Shaw. And then instead of making a 365 deployments, in a lot of cases, they made it 180s. So you're right, it's not it's not gone completely, uh, but I've talked to a lot of folks that have deployed to Shaw, especially folks that are stationed in North Carolina or even Delaware, and being able to, to go home on the weekend or being able to have your family come down here for the weekend is better than spending an entire year downrange. The other question I had was about volunteers. You said a very high percentage is, is volunteers hearing for this where that wasn't the case before. Right. Uh, I, I know that in the past I've been offered or told that I was going to deploy and then I can either volunteer for it or they can just give it to me anyway, but either way I'm going. It sounds like the new direction is they're actually implementing programs like the advanced assignment and the deferment so that people are truly volunteers for this. Right. I'm optimistic that that's actually the case, but is there still a lot of the the, the assignment notification and then people choosing to volunteer for it just so that it shows that they're a volunteer. It, do you think those stats are padded a little bit? Um, I've been around long enough to know that that's, that's probably the case. What I don't know is the exact percentage of that being the case. Um, in some ways, that's smart on your squadron commander's part because if, if he waits long enough to where no one volunteers and you get tapped with it, you lose some of the benefits that come with it. That goes back for a long time. Uh, I remember back when the RPAs first came out and I was at Grand Forks, they'd asked for volunteers to go to the RPA and nobody wanted to go um, to the Global Hawk at the time. And so the OG, up against the timeline, pulled an individual into the office and said, hey, as of today, you can be a volunteer. As of tomorrow, if I get no volunteers, you're it. Um, but all the bennies that come with being a volunteer happen today, but come tomorrow, you've tied my hands. Uh, so that individual went home, talked to his spouse, and then came back in at the, the 11th hour. Hey, are there any volunteers? Nope. Okay, I'll volunteer then. Okay. All right, so some of that's just, a, 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 I think, the way that squadron commanders are trying to make certain that the person gets some benefits that go along with it. 
So were there any other items while you were down at AFPC that you got to discuss that were relevant to the enlisted? There were, and the, and the biggest piece was, was probably what the AFPC commander talked about with the civilian hiring process. Uh, that affects enlisted in the same way that it affects officers, uh, depending on who, who you are and which office you're in and how many civilians you work with. Uh, and I can tell you that, that they've added more staff to certain offices in order to make certain that the volume is churned through faster. And then at the same time, they broke it down. They used to have civilians assigned to a particular base. So we'd have a, a few civilians at AFPC working nothing but Dover assignments. Uh, the problem with that is, is every career field has its own uniquenesses. So they'd have to learn a lot of different career fields and those different uniquenesses. So what they've done now is an internal reorg. And instead of doing it by base, they do it by career fields. So there's now a person or two working all fire fighter jobs, working all DAF police officer jobs. And what they're finding is because that person can master those particular career field uniquenesses quicker and faster, they're actually able to go through the volume faster than trying to do it by a particular base. Um, this may not be connected, uh, or, but the, ex the trouble that we're having with keeping providers over at the CDC and the high turnover rate, do, you, do the changes that they're making at AFPC, do you feel that that will have a trickle-down effect in helping us with our issues at the CDC? Yes and no. It's going to help at the CDC in the sense of, once again, that we have a person that's more specialized in, in hiring CDC workers. So that part of the chain will go faster. Uh, some of the difficulty with the CDC is you also have to do the background checks and those sort of things. So regardless of how AFPC reorganizes, the background checks will still be a, a certain amount of delay to make certain that the people that are handling our kids and dealing with our kids have, have the appropriate background checks. Or sir, uh, while you're down there, I know this question is uh, directed more to the officer side of the house there, but uh, about two years ago, there were some changes to the IDE program. Uh, we're really kind of making the shift away from selects into making everyone a candidate. Uh, were there any other uh, discussions about IDE or developmental, edu developmental education as a whole that there, we had? There were. There was the actual MAF-DT in the sense of vectoring people to various schools. Uh, and then at the same time, they gave a briefing on developmental education and just some of the numbers and stats and how the program itself works. Uh, overall, there were 1,620 officers nominated for IDE and uh, 550 seats. So if you got a nomination, you got about a one-third chance of actually getting picked up uh, to go to school. For STE, Senior Developmental Education, there were 1,400 officers nominated. And all in all, they had about 248 seats. So you got about a 20% chance of getting picked up for SDE. One of the things that's a little bit different than in the past is if you get picked up for school in the past and you declined, then it was kind of declined with prejudice where they would hold it against you on, on getting picked up for school in the future. Uh, one of the things that they've changed for this year is if you get picked up for school and a life event happens or somehow school isn't the right thing for you, you can decline. Um, what it'll do is it'll go to someone else in your career field because they try to keep a nice balance between fighter pilots, cyber officers, LROs at various schools. So it'll kind of come back to AMC as the mothership for the MAP community uh, if, a, if a mobility pilot were to decline. Um, and in that career field, I'll fill it and then you'll be able to compete again next year without any sort of prejudice.
So if you decline, they'll, they'll pass it to the career field of the individual that declined. And then that career field may try to move some people around that somebody may be accepted to another school that might have been their third or fourth choice. Uh, and the person that declines the school is the choice that that other person wants. So they'll end up shuffling someone else into that. But eventually it works its way to where there's a new opening. And then they'll take somebody that was on the alternate list and fill them into that, that alternate position that was open. So what was the alternate rate uh, last year? Were they able to, to get a lot of alternates to school as well? They, they were, and it's a little bit career field dependent, but both for the MAF, the Mobility Air Forces, and the CAF, the Combat Air Forces, they went through almost all the names on the alternate list. So it's not a guarantee in any way, shape, or form, but if you're on the alternate list, you got a good chance of, of being picked up this year. Uh, and then the other thing that was different process-wise for this year was the golden ticket. Uh, once again, instead of a board someplace in San Antonio or the Pentagon or someplace else churning through things and picking people, they gave each wing commander the option to guarantee one person to go to school. So we exercised that ticket this year. Okay, sir, so you brought up the golden ticket. Um, what, what exactly is that? And then how did that help you as a wing commander? And also how does that, how does that help me as a CGO as I'm competing for major and then competing for IDE? You know, how, how would that apply to me? Well, it applies in the sense that, you know, the old saying of always always a bridesmaid, never a bride, right? So if you've got somebody that has competed in years past but never quite made it, but yet the senior raider thinks, hey, that's a person that for whatever reason their record may not quite ring right or they may not quite be able to get past that, that line, then you're given one ability to pick somebody and just tell the board, hey, this person's going to school. Um, so for some of those folks out there that just can't quite seem to make it, um, it does add that. One of the disadvantages are there, there's still only 300 and something seats for IDE. So if somebody had the record that would have made it, it's penguins on an iceberg, right? When I take somebody that might have been just slightly below the cut line and I know them by being a senior raider and I think, darn it, they really do deserve it and we're going to kind of end run the system by putting them in, they go in someone else whose records would have made it got dropped off who was at the bottom of that list. Uh, so there is good and bad with it. Now with that being said, we've been asked, um, hey, don't just always take the person who wouldn't have made it, right? You gotta use your own way and how you're gonna pick. Uh, and you may pick someone that you think's records are good enough, uh, but you just wanna guarantee it this year. Uh, that way somebody doesn't get bumped off the island as well. Uh, sir, how does the conversation go between you and potential IDE candidates before before they go up for selection? Are you, are you asking folks if they if they intend to stay uh, in the Air Force, if they intend to go to school, or if you want to give somebody that golden ticket? Is it somebody that you're fairly confident will take advantage of it, or are you just picking people based purely off of performance, uh, regardless of whether or not you think they'll actually use that school slot? Um. I do not have those conversations with individuals, but the squadron commanders do. And then I'm going off of what the squadron commanders are telling me. They're the central entry point. Uh, so a lot of it, just like everything else, your squadron commanders are gonna pick who they wanna push and who they don't wanna push uh, and, and argue for on their behalf. They're gonna bring that to the group commanders and they're gonna have discussions across their group for how they try to rack and stack that in the group. And then the group commanders and I are gonna sit down and have conversations on, on various officers. And a lot of the questions that you brought up get discussed, uh, but I don't have that discussion directly with the individual. I have that discussion with their commanders.
So we were talking about potentially declining IDE. You mentioned uh, trying to maintain a good mix of mobility and, and fighter pilots and, and whatnot. What was some of the, the numbers breakdown of, of the IDE and, and what were you looking at as a math? So when the, when the math DT looks at it, they had about 73 positions that they would most likely get. Out of that, there were five that were under the old system as being school selects. So they're gonna go to school no matter what, um, or they were deferred. So that brings you down about 68 competitive positions across the math. Out of those 68, um, there were 29 gold tickets with 29 different senior raiders. So that leaves you 39 slots to be competitive for kind of the math, uh, the math wings, if you will. After everything was said and done, they went back and looked at all the scores the AFPC folks did. And out of the 29 golden tickets, 16 people would have scored high enough under the old system to have made it without questions asked. There were 13 um, who probably wouldn't have made it under the old system. And that's where I talk about where it's good for some people and not good for others. So for those 13 individuals, good for them that they had a senior aider that said, hey, I'm gonna put in a ticket for them. Good for them that, that somebody who physically knew them and knew their capabilities could kind of speak up and, and put a vote in for them. But if we'd done just the board scores raw, the 13 people at the bottom of that score got bumped to make room for those 13 additional golden tickets that wouldn't have made it just on their records alone. Do you think it's worth the, um, the discussion on the difference between, the, if you're not prepared to talk about it, it's fine, the uh, straight up declining IDE versus deferring it? But I know that's a, that's a pretty close conversation between the member and the commander though as well. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, if you defer, the, the advantage there is you're going, you're just going next year right. and you're going to the school that you were picked for. For the most part, not 100%, but for the most part. Um, where if you decline it, then it's kind of all bets off. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest significant difference. What's the difference in circumstances that would drive one versus the other? Uh, an ops deferment based on some sort of operational need. Mm -hmm. You know, the commander says, hey, for the needs of the Air Force, we, we would like to defer this person. The declination is someone sometimes just saying, no, I don't want it. Mm -hmm. I have no reason except for the fact I don't want it. Mm -hmm. And you've got that right to say I don't want it, but then you have to compete again next year. And then I'll tell you, there, some of the mystery that goes behind IDE and even SDE for some folks is how do I, how do I pick a school and how does that work and, and, and how does it all work out? So after the MAFDT pushes forth its recommendation, it goes to a central board. And out of that central board, the academy will actually come out first for the AOC program. Mm -hmm and kind of pick, hey, these are the folks we want coming to the AOC program. So if you have the AOC program as your number two choice, your number three choice, but you have a phenomenal record and the academy says, hey, that's the type of person we want, realize they're probably gonna cherry pick you early. So if you put that one on there, that's a risk that, that you take. Um, then it ends up going to the school match board um, and they try to figure out, okay, let's do some of the smaller schools first which are usually more the competitive ones, the, the one person goes or the more highly selective, they kind of take those out first and then they stick to the larger schools next. Um, and there's a little bit of, uh, gamesmanship's not the right word for it, but gamesmanship. So because, let's use the academy as an example again, 
the academy is two years getting your master's degree followed by one year at the academy. It's a three-year program. So if you're in your third look and then you go into a three-year IDE program, that just delays you for an amount of time. So in general, the academy really focuses on picking AOCs that are in their first look and they might take someone in their second look. In most cases, they're not going to take the third look. So if you're a third look candidate, um, don't don't put the academy down. You you know do what you want, but you just take your chances that the odds are they're not going that way. That's right. Anyways. I think that's a really good point uh, for anyone out there um, that's taking a look. The IDE SDE catalog actually have a list of the requirements as well for um, what AFSCs are looking for and uh, applicable looks. And and sir, you're exactly right. I, I think even in the current version of the IDE SDE catalog. Uh, AOC only applies to first and second looks only because of that. And then you also, this is the hard part, right? You have to have an honest conversation first with yourself and then an honest conversation with your, with your squadron commander. If, if you're somebody that says, hey, I've got a good record, but it's not outstanding. I've got a good record and I'm probably going to get a school slot, but I may not get a school slot then if you put all five of your choices as fellowship programs to Stanford, Harvard, and Yale, the odds are you're not going to get what your choices were. And they try as hard as possible to match people up. They've actually had um, a 97% match rate to the top three choices of the senior rater officers push for IDE and a 98% to the top three choices of the senior raters push for, for SDE. Um, but those ones that don't match are usually somebody that falls further down and they, their, their options were just too lofty. Uh, so some once again, some gamesmanship is if you want to take a blind chance then put four of them in there that are no kidding, really hard to get, and the ones you really want. And then just like a kid applying for college, right? You have your safety school, right? I'm going to apply to whatever that's really hard to get into and then I'll try to apply for the local state school to guarantee I can get in someplace. Uh, as you're applying for IDE and SDE, put down something that you want to do so that the board at least knows that's what you want, even though it may be your fifth choice, and they'll do what they can. Deferred Maxwell is always choice number six. Is that is that correct in your experience? It, yes and no, and it's starting to change. So so yes in the sense that, that, that Maxwell is quantity, right? I mean, if you look at the Harvard Fellowship, it's one or two people. If you look at Stanford, it's one or two people. If you look at a legislative liaison program, it's one or two people. Um, Whereas when you look at Maxwell, it's hundreds of people, right? So it's just quantity is going to be its, its own sweeper, if you will. Um, but at the same time, what they're starting to do, especially with like the AU fellowships, is they're bringing people down to Maxwell to do one year at ACSC and then follow on with teaching at ACSC. Bring somebody down for a year and teach at SOS and then go to ACSC. Bring someone down to War College and then keep them down there for another year to teach. In those particular cases, that's not the number six choice because they're fellowship programs, they're higher up there, and they're a little more select. Sir, on our, on our last podcast, there was some discussion about when you're filling out, um, what was the form that you were referring to? When the My Vector. The My Vector and the comments mm -hmm. that you put into My Vector. The process that you're talking about now, is that what we spoke about before? And for people who were not listening to that podcast, uh, I think the advice you gave about filling that out is will be good to repeat here. Sure. So, so when you apply for IDE or SDE, you're given space to put in some comments on a form, and then your senior rater is given space to put in the same. 
Um, and quite frankly, the lecture that we got on senior rater comments were exactly what I just talked about, where, hey, if you have an officer that's probably barely going to get into SDE, barely get into IDE, and all they've got is, is the very hard schools to compete for, and as a wing commander or a senior rater, you're, you're not doing them any good, just pushing them for things that are unrealistic. So have that conversation with the officer and, and shape some of those comments accordingly. Uh, but for the individuals, yeah, you, you can only put down there one, you got to be consistent, but you can only put down there something that says, hey, based on my experiences in the joint community, I'd like to go to a joint school and better the Air Force because trust me, every other person has put that sort of a comment down there, so it adds no value. Uh, if, if you, and when you see people that will put comments on there that say, joint is the most important thing to me based on my career and experience in the joint world, and then you see that they, they want to go to Marine Command and Staff College, you go, okay, that makes sense, that's a joint school. And then they want to do SAF LL. You're like, well, that's not necessarily joint. I guess it's sort of interagency, but maybe that counts. And then they want to go to Georgetown. And you're like, well, Georgetown has nothing to do with joint. Why would they? And then they want to go to uh, George Mason. You're like, okay, what I really am seeing, because you're not an idiot, is a cluster around the D.C. area. So what they really want to do is go to the D.C. area for IDE. So you're really better off just being honest and upfront and saying, hey, uh, my wife has a great job in the D.C. area. Um, I don't want her to have to make tougher choices than she already has to make. I'm, I'm open and willing to any IDE program. Please give me a preference somewhere in the D.C. area. And then when you got Command and Staff College with the Marine Corps, SAF LL program, Georgetown, and George Mason, I go, okay, that's a consistent message. That makes sense. Um, so stop trying to kind of do the flowery stuff and just put down some truth and honesty because you've got board members that especially if you score high on the rack and stack they're trying to get you what you want for the right reasons what are those right reasons uh, those right reasons are obviously going to be professional development things that you're trying to do to, to round out your career and then there's going to be personal reasons hey my mom and dad are sick and they've got cancer and they live in this area and I'd like to stay close by hey my wife has a job uh, she's a lawyer, she's a professional in some way, shape, or form. It's hard for her for licensing reasons to, to switch jobs. Uh, I, I would like to stay in this area. If you, if you take the attitude of give me this or nothing else, you know, go take a hike, well, the board's going to respond accordingly. If you say, hey, this is what I'd like because you're asking, but I understand I'm and willing to go wherever the Air Force needs me to, then they accept that as an answer as well. Uh, the biggest thing I can tell you is just be honest and truthful. They're, they're, they're trying their best to match people. It just doesn't always work out. Um, so as I'm looking through the catalog and I'm, I'm trying to put down my top five list or my top five school choices, what are some factors that, that I can start to look at? How do I go through and, and choose the schools that are right for me? All right. my, my opinion on that would be always do what you want. Uh, you don't want to spend a year at a school that you don't want to be at, learning about something you're not interested in. You always do better if you try to do what you want. So don't get into the gamesmanship as much as just try to figure out, you know, no kidding, what do I desire? At the same time, like we talked about previously, you, you got to be realistic. You got to look at yourself. You got to look at your record. You got to be honest. You got to have that hard conversation with your commander and say, hey, what's realistic for me to go to? Or am I just shooting for the stars? And it's probably okay to spend one or two that shoot for the stars. Just don't put all five down that shoot for the stars. Uh, you got to look at timing. We talked about the AOC example earlier for career path development, in particular for pilots. If you are a late to rate individual and you are trying to keep gate months, 
And then you, even if you earn your first look and you got a great record and you want to go to the academy and be an AOC, what if you don't end up flying at the academy? That's three years of non-flying, three years of non-gate months. And if you were late to rate already, then now you've just backed yourself into a corner on your gate months and your experience as a pilot. Um, so you got to think about timing as well and time out of the jet. And then, once again, I, I would try to be consistent and, and thoughtful in why you want to go to that school and whether it's a joint spouse assignment and some sort of stability. Um, hey, I want to go to ACSC uh, because my wife's also probably going to get picked up for IDE or my husband's going to get picked up for IDE uh, and the odds of two of us going to ACSC are greater than two of us going to the Stanford Fellowship Program, right? So that helps you figure out the, the why for family reasons. And I'll throw out one more category, and that's what your priorities are in the Air Force. Probably, I, I think you kind of said this, sir, but um, for some people, if they if they just want to be a squadron commander, there's probably schools that, that might focus them in that direction, but others, if they want to, after the Air Force, pursue a business career, maybe there's a school that would focus them in that career. Uh, in that direction. Is that a good conversation to have with the squadron commander? Uh, yes and no, because the first part that you said I think is a fallacy in the sense of, hey, there's a school that will make me better suited for command. you got to remember, if you're going to IDE, you're in the top roughly 20% of your peers. All those schools are going to gear you in some way, shape, or form for command. So uh, no one, as we're looking at right now today, um, the next round of, of Phoenix Eagle List folks, I'm not looking at, hey, did they go to this school or that school? All right. Or you can just do what I did and just pick the best locations. Well, you can find. well I, so my <laughs> wife and I, we did a, I picked schools based on uh -huh. what I wanted, and I wrote locations, and we did a blind test. And I said, I have my one through five. I won't show you. Here are the locations, one through five. Let me know how you rank these. And our one, two, and three all matched up. So it was Perfect. really easy. Well, and for me, I looked at the D.C. area as a follow-on job mm -hmm. and thought, okay, if I get some place for IDE that's in the D.C. area and I do a follow-on job in the D.C. area, there's a certain amount of stability there. Right. Um, because I was a little different than most captains. I had four flying assignments um, before I pinned on major. That's a station killer, sir. I was stationed at Kadena, Grand Forks, McDill, and McCord <laughs> uh, in my first 10 years in the Air Force. Uh, so the constant moving, it was okay to kind of, hey, let's stay someplace for three years. Right. Uh, so some of our conversations there focused on the IDE numbers uh, of what we see across the MAF. Are the SDE numbers uh, fairly similar? Uh, the only difference with the SDE numbers really is they're just smaller. Uh, there was For the MAF DT, we were pushing for about 39 different positions. Out of those, six were ops deferred. So really, you're looking at 33 slots that are being competitive across the entire MAF enterprise. Um, sir, you've seen some uh, information out there flowing on, on instructor duties. I know that that's been a larger emphasis item um, in AFPC's uh, guidance and, and requests that they've sent out. Uh, was any of that discussed during your visit as well? It, it, it was. They ended up giving a briefing on the officer, instructor, and recruiting duty. Uh, the good news is there were something like 1,100 to 1,200 volunteers for about 350 to 400 positions. So overwhelming uh, amount of people for very few positions, which is right in line with what the chief was trying to do to make it a little more competitive. Uh, what you'll find in general is that the ROTC debt commander uh, instructor job is, is extremely competitive. That's the one that the majority seem to want. Um, 
This year they had over 300 people apply for that, but they're only gonna have 89 positions available. Uh, the Academy Instructors is another one. Um, they had over 600 people apply for that one with only 40 positions available. Um, but even if you include all the other positions that are being competed for, there's still over 200 positions with four or 500 people competing for them. The goal is to have everything matched up by September and have some of that stuff out publicly by October. Now, you know, like all things, things may slide to the right, but that's, that's their goal. And one of the new things that they're going to try to do for this year um, is in the past, I know, you know, I was always interested in doing the ROTC detachment instructor. And uh, when I was a captain, it, it said right on the website, if you are rated, do not apply. Because just like today, in the 1990s, we were, we were short on pilots. Um, so that, that crossed my dream right away. Um, they're reserving 20 ROTC instructor slots for rated folks. So there is a portion they're going to be pulled out for rated to make certain that the ROTC um, instruction and career field has that, that touch point to it. But the one requirement is you have to have your first gate complete. Um, so are there any incentives for uh, jumping on, on that instructor or recruiter duty? There are. With the way that they've, they've designed it, you'll get a T prefix on your AFSC for those particular uh, years that you're in that position which once again goes back to uh, DTs, promotion boards, and everything else of a way of identifying instructor duty so that they'll get a couple extra points on, on various briefings. Um, they're gonna put, the SECAF has that memorandum of instruction that goes out for promotion boards, and in it, she's gonna emphasize, hey, take the time to look for people that have instructor duty. They're trying as much as possible to make it a two-year assignment. Uh, that way, in particular for Folks in the rated career field where you step out of an airplane for a couple years, it allows you to get back to what you were doing with minimal requalification time so that you're not away from your tribe for too long. And then they're, they're trying as hard as possible to have a preference to your alma mater if you're going to sign up for ROTC. So if you've graduated from a particular ROTC unit, they're going to try to uh, hook you up at that particular unit on, on the back side. And then this one's a little looser and it depends on each functional, but they'll try to encourage functionals to have some sort of a follow-on assignment preference that, hey, if you've taken the time to do the instructor duty for a couple of years, let's give them a little bit of a referential treatment on the backside. But that's hard to tell two, three, four years from now what the needs of the Air Force are gonna be, so that's not locked in stone. Uh, so when's that notification coming out, and how far in advance are our individuals gonna know that they're selected for that? Once again, the, the goal is, is to have that all out by October, uh, the idea being that since it's kind of a, a summer-fall uh, cycle for assignments, especially for things like ROTC and the Academy that are going to be on an academic year, if they can let you know in the fall that you have an assignment the following summer, then you'll have a good nine months in advance notice. Once again, the Air Force is, is trying to get after that uncertainty that, that people don't like and finding out something short notice and scrambling by letting you know well in advance uh, when your assignment's going to be and where it's going to be. I don't know how to ask this question, but the comment was in the past, for a lot of these instructor duties, there was people calling their friends, right? Trying to get hooked up, mm -hmm. call a buddy up, work the Bubba network. So then people would get put in based on the Bubba network versus anything more systematic. So now because there's a board and there's a cycle to it, it's nope, you apply to the board, you go through the cycle, we match the people. That way it's not so much a, a bro network behind the scenes. Yeah. I'm sure there have been some uh, Oh, wait. 
on that. All right, there we go. Got flipped. Um, some changes to officer promotions. Uh, one of which is already on the street is a new uh, Air Force form for uh, PRFs, the, the new two-line PRF that replaced the nine-line PRF. Uh, one discussion was had at AFPC regarding those two-line PRFs. There, there was a lot of discussions on the two-line PRFs. Overwhelmingly, uh, from the senior raiders in the room, everybody likes the two lines versus the nine. Uh, but there's still a little confusion in the fine print to what can be put on a PRF, what can't be put on a PRF, uh, and, and we're kind of working through that, and they gave us uh, some of those lessons learned to, to kind of make it a learning process even for the wing commanders since it's new for us as well. And then, and then they kind of asked for, hey, there's a need and a desire for feedback as, as we work through this. One of the questions that was brought up is, like right now, if you're a lieutenant colonel or higher, the NAF commander is the one that signs off on the PRFs. So as we put less emphasis on the PRF, uh, as it's a little quicker and easier to do, and more of it is geared towards the record, are the NAF commanders the right people to do some PRFs? Are we really bogging them down with a workload that doesn't need to be at their level? No answer to that, but it was a, a point of discussion to try to figure out, hey, is there a better way to build a mousetrap? I think one of the big advantages with the two line is, I mean, you go from nine lines to two lines, you'd like to think that you're decreasing the workload from, from nine to two, but I would imagine part of the challenge is taking all that content from your previous nine lines and trying to figure out how to put it into the two lines. So do you really think this will save raiders and, and execs time as they build those PRFs, or do you think they'll just spend all that extra time trying to fit it all into two lines now? I, I think I don't think it'll save time. I know it'll save time because I've seen it already. Um, I've seen it with the way that I approach PRFs. I can churn through a PRF much faster now than I could before, so it's already saved me time. Um, JP can answer more for the execs in the front office. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the uh, some of what we've seen in the front office has just been trying to get that guidance and that feedback right from 18th Air Force on what's uh, what's really being accepted and what's not. But the development of the PRF itself definitely has decreased. Um, the the amount of time you took in, you know, just trying to verify every little thing in the PRF that came from the record, uh, that time alone has, has been saved for sure. And, and I told our squadron commanders at our last breakfast, I said, hey, when you're writing the draft PRF two lines, I'm, I'm probably before seven of those lines or so, I'd probably leave as is and I would tweak one or two of them. Uh, which means those seven had to be tight and be well written. Now there's only two lines, and I'm personally tweaking those two lines. So I told the squadron commanders, don't waste a lot of time on perfection. Just give me enough information to give me the thoughts on what you think it should look like, and then I'll kind of come in and do that last 15% or so. So I can only imagine it's saving the squadron commanders time too by not having to tweak every single thing perfectly. That's great. I, I think there's some... I think the development of the two line, correct me if I'm wrong here, sir, is that uh, one line can capture information that uh, may be in between uh, records for the member. So maybe um, the member set meeting a board with a, uh, an OPR closeout that hasn't been, there's OPR that hasn't been closed out yet. Um, so try to capture maybe those big rocks, you know, taking on a big project. And then the bottom line really is that that eligible and, and where they rack and stack. Is that is that the intent on the two line? Right. Well, they found out, they did research for about a year, maybe a year and a half, and they did some test runs on, on PRFs. 
and they found the reality was the strongest indicator on any PRF, the strongest thing was the bottom line. Uh, the other eight lines put into a PRF had minimal impact to change in scores. They ran mock boards and they gave people just the bottom line, scored them out, and they gave people all nine lines, scored them out, and they came out almost exactly the same. So if they come out almost exactly the same, what are we doing with those other eight lines? Uh, there was an, a thought, okay, let's just do it a one line. And then I think the, the middle ground was, hey, let's just add another line in there to give people a little bit of extra movement. Um, I, I can even tell you in the, in the way that's written now because they're emphasizing do not repeat what is in the record. That's just a waste of time. Uh, senior raters and board members and everyone else that's tearing through records know how to tear through records and, and they can read them already. So really take the time to just communicate to the board what your thought is on that person in almost a more plain language type of way than some sort of a deciphered decoder ring way of doing things. Uh, and that works good and bad for individuals, right? So if, if the desire is to get somebody promoted, I can say in very plain English, why? And at the same time, if a desire is not to get somebody promoted, um, I can say not as well. One of the ways that, that I've done that recently um, is we've, at this wing, we've pushed the blank PRF. Hey, if it is only two lines and you are concerned about what I write, do I even have to write anything or can I just send it up blank, put a P on it, which is kind of a way of saying, look at the record. If you need to promote the guy, great. But if you don't, not our strongest push. Uh, and so far, 18th Air Force has taken them being blank, which saves a whole lot of writing. I'll put you on the spot, sir, as a, as a brief follow-up to that. If we can determine whether somebody should, should promote based off of two lines, could we pick a quarterly award winner based off of two lines? Um, no, and I'll tell you why. It's not just two lines. The two lines on the PRF go on top of the record. And then I've got 10, 15, 20 years of records, decorations, medals. When I'm looking at a quarterly award winner, I'm not looking at their medals. I'm not looking at their surf. I'm not looking at their 10 years of record because it's not 10 years of record. It's what happened in the last quarter. And you won't even have a promotion uh, report in a lot of cases cover that last quarter. Now, the real question should be asked is, is there a better way of doing it than the way that we do our 1206s? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm willing to bet there's a better way. I don't have it figured out yet. But right. The, the way that we write them could probably be easier. So along with those uh, changes to the PRF, one that hasn't hit uh, or is not fully implemented yet is the changes to align the Air Force developmental categories. Uh, what discussion uh, did you have at AFPC regarding those? Yeah, this, this has been a, a key topic of discussion with the Chief of Staff. I mean, he's not only had the MAFDT talked about it, uh, we've gotten emails directly from the Chief of Staff asking us to talk to Airmen about it. It's one of the reasons I brought it up in the uh, commander's call is to try to get some feedback. And there was even a TMT tasker that went out to say, hey, please provide feedback. Um, so that's a discussion that's still ongoing. And in September, we have a wing commander's all call in D.C. And it's one of the items on the agenda for the chief to talk to us about directly is, hey, what is the field's opinion on doing the developmental categories? Uh, and they've given the reason why. Right, so in, in 1947, there were four categories. In 2019, there are four categories. So we have not changed since the Air Force birth. Um, the only difference is, instead of medical being one giant category, medical is subdivided into, into five. There, when you look at the line of the Air Force, which represents a large, large majority 
of the one category being overwhelmingly the majority. There's over 40 AFSCs that are determined in that one category. And if you try to think of a, a you know round hole, square peg type thing and one size fits all, we can't have one career pyramid for 40 AFSCs. So by breaking it into different categories, then you can kind of start to tailor those particular functional areas to what should that look like. Um, and it may not be the same. So a couple examples that come to mind. You know, we've all, I, I believe strongly in education. It's one of the reasons I, I, I looked at it at the math DT. Um, but you gotta ask yourself, is it really important for a pilot who's working through uh, first pilot training, uh, aircraft commander upgrade, instructor upgrade, during that critical time frame to also try and get their master's done at the same time? Maybe not, maybe later in life, but not early in life. But if you got somebody that's a biochemist or a engineer for the Air Force and they're working at AFIT or they're working at Wright-Pat, do you want that individual to have a master's degree? Yeah, you do, based on the job that they're doing for the Air Force. So by breaking things out, you can tailor things in that manner that are more specific to that particular area. So that's kind of the, the why behind it. Sir, do you see you, uh, with that being a little bit more tailored, do you see that having any, any uh, second or third order effects on how we write performance reports? Uh, for example, if I'm a, a rated pilot, uh, as I am, um, would my performance report, you know, kind of put a little bit more, uh, for lack of a better term, pilot jargon in there, uh, knowing that, that maybe a few more board members are, are rated sitting on my board? Uh, you know, I love answering it like, like good instructor does right it depends so yes and no um, because the board is going to be predominantly rated folks and they'll usually put a non-rated person on there to make certain it's not group think um, treat it very much like today when the JAG sends up a report and has a little more JAG jargon in it I understand the JAG is going to be looking at it when the medical folks send it up a little more jargon I understand that okay it's going to be medical folks looking at this uh, so that for promotion boards it'll be done that particular way it may work perfectly the problem that you got to still kind of be conscientious of is well, what happens when you're doing something that your record is used for that is not a promotion? What happens when you're trying to get a job in the Air Force and that job isn't in your functional expertise? Uh, you know, I ended up getting put in for a job to be the NORTHCOM, uh, NORAD NORTHCOM G8 Deputy Director. They were looking at Navy records, Army records, Air Force records, and the G8 is very much financial comptroller requirements career field. If I'd written that thing with nothing but pilot ease for 15 to 20 years, that comptroller that was looking at my records would not have been able to read them. So you, you got to kind of balance it out for all things. So I'm a pilot. I would love to load up my, whether it's my PRF or my OPR with just all my flying bullets because that's honestly what I have the most fun doing. But I understand that if I just say I flew all these missions, Nobody cares about that if I'm competing for a job that has nothing to do with flying an airplane. And so is there a better way to phrase that so that you can still highlight all the things you've done as a flyer, but kind of phrase it in more of a leadership standpoint? Or uh, if, if you were the first person to fly somewhere, maybe that was in a, a more innovative, innovative way of looking at it. Well, I'm going to answer your question a little bit differently than sure. I think you may be looking for. So think about it this way. How many pilots are in the Air Force? There's a lot. Okay. So, and I get this in particular out of the ninth, a little bit more than the third. The first bullet on almost every single performance report coming out of the ninth is, I, I flew X, so many passengers, so much cargo delivered to such and such location. 
well, if I'm at a MAF DT, which is predominantly pilots, and I'm trying to figure out who gets promoted, who doesn't, who gets pushed, who doesn't, who gets to, to what, and every single thing says, flew five missions, did X, did Y, offloaded this and this and this. If you could, if you could only push one person, do you push the person that did six combat missions or the person that did five combat missions? It depends. What if the person <laughs> offloaded 10,000 pounds and the other person offloaded 10,300 10, pounds? Sure. Right? I mean, after a while, it's, it's, it's just like the conversation we had earlier on putting your comments down for IDE and SDE, where there's only so many times you can read, um, hey, due to my joint experience and previous whatever, I'd like to build on that to be whatever. After a while, it just starts to become whitewash. Because, because although it's important that you're out there flying the line, that's your job. So what you're really saying is, hey, I am doing what I get paid to do. I am doing what I got trained to do. All right, congratulations, good job. You can keep doing what you're doing, you can keep doing it. But if you want to do more than that, what are you doing to lead people? So more importantly is, instead of just, hey, I flew someplace, if, if you're in an airframe that allows for a formation, hey, I was the mission commander of a four-ship formation. Okay, that's different. Hey, I was, dealing with flying operations, I flew combat missions, but I was also the debt commander at, at the multimodal. And the overall impact of the multimodal as it got done on time, if not early, and combat power was thrown down range as required. Right, so, so those are the things. What, what have you done to, and that's why things like being an aircraft commander, and, and hey, I'm leading a 10-person uh, crew, is gonna be more important sometimes than saying, hey, I was, I was just a pilot on the airplane. I happen to do the takeoff and landing. Well, so, I mean, by the time you're a major, so did everyone else. Um, and, and we did this one time, uh, I think in, in one of the commander's calls, I said, hey, all the pilots in the room, raise your hand. And they all raised their hand. Okay, all of you that are field grade officers, keep your hands raised. They kept their hands raised. How many of you are instructors? Keep your hands raised. Not a hand went down. Okay, well, if everybody's an instructor that's a field grade officer, how's it a delineator? You're doing what every other person sitting next to you is doing. So the real question becomes, when are you not an instructor and everybody else is? When are you not in a leader position, but other people are? That's really what you're trying to get after. I mean, this gets away from the PRF type questions and that sort of thing and in the career development, but it gets into what goes into a performance report and how do you show that you've got leadership? That's the key. Awesome, and I think what I heard as, as a pilot is I can still use those flying bullets, oh, yeah. but what's more important is the times where, as a leader, I made an impact through my job as a pilot, not necessarily the fact that I just happened to fly 264 hours last year. Right. I mean, everybody's flown 264 hours. The real question becomes, and that's why, you know, especially as first pilots, and, and, and is when you have an emergency and, you know, there's different levels in emergencies, right? But if you shut down an engine on an aircraft and you got that aircraft back down to the ground safely, all right, we know there was a certain amount of CRM that was involved in that. We know there was a certain level of stress that was involved in that. We know that um, there's a certain pucker factor and everything else, and, and, and despite all of that, you did what you were trained to do well and, and, and safely. Uh, not that a bird strike's an easy thing, but, but if you had a bird strike and it hit the nose and bounced off and the airplane was still okay, and then you put, hey, I had a bird strike, aircraft delivered safely to the ground, if it was one bird just bouncing off the bottom of the airplane and maintenance checked out the airplane and it flew the very next day, that's fundamentally different than, hey, we had an engine catch fire and shut the thing down sure. over the ocean. 
uh, sort of kind of get back to those developmental categories, just some of the information or some of the uh, discussions I've had with peers throughout the wing, it, it seems like everyone's just kind of, you know, cautiously optimistic about it. Um, everyone's just kind of just sitting back waiting to see how it affects them before we really make that determination on whether or not it's, it's something that's really embraced by the field. Uh, would you say that's the same uh, that you've seen in having those other discussions with other wing commanders throughout their wings? Is that kind of how the enterprise is, is responding as a whole? Um, in general, yes. Everybody seems to be, I've yet to have anybody say this is an absolutely bad idea. Please do not do this. Um, but no one's also very strong behind it and pushing it forward. Everybody's kind of wants to just pause and hey, how does this affect me? How does this affect my career field? And that's tough to tell when it's all theoretical and hypothetical. Uh, now, once the changes take place and there's real impact, so-and-so got promoted, so-and-so didn't, so-and-so such-and-such happened to him, and this other person that didn't, that's when I think we'll have more verbal, okay, I am happy with this or I'm not happy with this. Yes, sir. All right, you want to do career field manager? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Um, sorry, again, going back to the, the AFPC visit, uh, was there any discussion with the 11 and 12 Mike career field managers? Yeah, they had uh, Colonel Scott Link from the Pentagon come down and, and just give a, a briefing on a couple of areas. And one that he looked at was a career field overall health. Um, and in general, amongst the CGOs, there's more of a requirement out there than there are pilots and people. Uh, amongst the FGOs, it's just the opposite. There's actually more FGOs than, than there are requirements for FGOs, which works out okay in the short term because where we have those vacancies at the squadron level, it's probably why you see a couple field grade officers in your squadron. Um, doing kind of the graybeard type duty. They're filling some of those CGO holes, if you will, and allowing for some experience. The question becomes, as that smaller grouping of CGOs works its way into being field grade officers, what does that call for the future? Are we gonna then be short on field grade officers? Um, and if behind them, we have a bunch of CGOs that hang on, we may end up having the opposite, where CGOs will be doing kind of FGO level work early on in their career. Um, but if it continues to be short and the FGOs are short, then that'll be a, a different ball game. And, and there's all sorts of thoughts and discussions on it, but with no particular answers. But as they've mapped it out, it's probably somewhere around calendar year 2021 that we'll start to see that shift take place. Yes, yeah, sir. Is there a, uh, any, any sort of particular year group or airframe that is impacted with that a little bit more than some others? Yeah, one, one of the things that they did do is also take it another level down instead of saying CGOs and FGOs. They could break it down by year group and by airframe. And it's a little bit of a mix. You'll find that one particular year group that might be healthy in C-17s may not be healthy in C-5s. Um, and as time goes on, they'll, they'll shift people a little bit left and right to fill in some of those. But as far as kind of the overall uh, bigger picture, it's, it's your tankers that are probably hurting worse than the airlift side of the house. And for some of those, there's, there's good reasons. So the Manning and the KC-46 isn't quite where it needs to be, but it's standing up. So it's in a transitionary phase. Um, and until it gets through its, its uh, full standup, it'll probably continue to be that way as they gain more and more aircraft. So it's a work in progress. But for, in particular, like the 135 community, it's not transition. It's just a community that's uh, hurting at overall Manning levels. But what are they looking at for a potential solve for that, sir? Is there any uh, any solutions that are being, being kicked around out there? 
Sure. I mean, that's that's where you saw a lot of the emphasis put on the air crew task force that looked at things. That's where you've seen pilot training ramp up um, so that we can increase the number of CGOs coming into the system so that, once again, as that one class becomes FGOs, if that CGO level still stays high, then we're okay. Um, that's where things like the, the pilot bonus and, and retention programs kick in as well. So you mentioned the retention programs, and we've had a number of senior leaders come down to the base, and our air crew have had opportunities to talk to them about uh, things that are impacting their desire to stick with the Air Force. Having gone up and talked with the career field manager, what have they heard, and what have they what are they taking action on? Um, they've they've heard probably everything that, that that you guys would think of as being the norm. Uh, everything from, you know, back-to-back -back type PCSs and wanting to spend a little bit more time in each locations. In some places like Dover and the C5 community, that's a little bit easier um, than, than some of the others because it's either Dover or Travis for, for the most parts. They've heard uh, the emphasis on families and spouses and spouse employment. Uh, once again, when you throw in some back-to-back -back PCSs um, that are short tours, then you know your spouse has to pick up and, and and change her career field as well or his career field as well so you'll see efforts like the chief of staff working with the various states to work on um, licensing so that, that they don't have to go through a year worth of retesting and certification and that sort of thing to make things a little bit easier uh, that's where you've seen changes to the ide allowing people to decline without any sort of prejudice where in the past you would decline with with prejudice uh, that's where you've seen even stuff to get rid of some of the administrative burden like the two-line PRFs. Hey, let's make life a little bit easier on people by doing two-line PRFs instead of nine lines, especially if the, the nine lines don't really change the, the impact on the back side. Um, and then that's where they, they attacked trying to get rid of as many of the 365s. I mean, as we discussed, sometimes that's a matter of splitting them into two 180 deployments, but most people will do a six-month deployment over a, a 365 if given the choice. And then that's where they've also tried to either eliminate some of them or even bring things back to Shaw. So there's there's multiple efforts on multiple fronts to try to get after it. And some of it is, is things that you wouldn't even think of that just bother even a certain group of people. So you, you see it in the news all the time right now where um, females in the military are quite frankly tired of wearing the male's uniform. So they're looking at how to design a more female-friendly uh, flight suit. They're looking at how to design female body armor that's, that's more friendly to the female body than the current body armor. So some of it has things that the average person doesn't think of, but certain groups uh, within the overall enterprise think about heavily. Yeah, so, so we talked to the, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on pilot retention probably and, uh, and the air crew crisis. Some people don't want to call it a crisis, but uh, one thing we talked about was pilot manning and, and how we're looking as far as FGOs and CGOs and the MAF squadrons. How has our obligation to provide instructors TPT affected us? And uh, what about sending pilots to staff where obviously UPT they're still flying, but when we send them to staff, they're not going to fly for a few years. How has that affected our manning? Right. So it's not so much manning as much as kind of the bill payer that we pay. So sure. When you look at the white jets, all the different MAGCOMs submit instructors to work at AATC. And you can look at the sizes of, of 
MAGCOMs and numbers of people and figure out kind of what the rough fair share should be. So when you look at, at the MAF community, approximately 36% of ATC instructors should be MAF if we did our, our, our quote fair share. But because of the shortage that they've had in the fighter community in particular, we've had to pick up a little bit more of that than we have in the past. And currently, about 49% of the ATC instructors are from the MAF community. So that's a little bit larger than what the math would have worked out as. And we found the same thing with the rated staff. So give or take, especially in some of the positions that aren't AMC or ACC, but just positions across the overall uh, Department of Defense, about one-third of those positions should be math pilots. And we're finding out that the number's probably more about 48%, just because ACC can't keep up with filling some of those slots due to the shortage of numbers that they have in the fighter community. Uh, the things that the career field manager is going after is for career advancement and development and experience and all sorts of stuff. You know, no two staff jobs are created the same. Some are considered better for your career than others. So if we just take that additional percentage and take whatever's left over, we may not get some of the better staff jobs per se. Uh, so they're working and saying, hey, we don't mind taking the percentage that we have to take in order to help out the other parts of the Air Force that can't fill those. But Let's, let's kind of be a little more selective in the ones that we get versus just anything that's left over. Absolutely. Do you see those numbers, especially on the UPT side, do you think over time those will go back to normal as we ramp up pilot training and maybe more people are first assignment instructor pilots? Do you, do you think we get closer to that 36% or is this a change here to stay? No, I, I think we'll get back to it. And I go back to the 90s. The exact same thing happened in the 90s. I mean, everything that you're seeing now you could go back 25 years or so and the same thing was happening. Um, the economy was doing well in the 90s, the dot-com uh, and the computers and everything else. That, that industry took off. It took off with the rest of the, the economy. The airlines were hiring left and right. There were studies saying that the airlines could hire every pilot the Air Force had and still be short on pilots. Um, and you saw a lot of the fighter pilots, for whatever goofy reason, get out and that community was short. And just like you saw now at the time, they said, hey, anybody's flown the T-38, you can cross train into fighters. And I had friends that were flying KC-135s that ended up flying uh, F-15Es later in their career because ACC was hurting to pull people over. The same thing was happening in the staffs, the same things was happening in pilot training. Yeah, it's amazing how it repeats itself. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it'll, it'll, my opinion, it'll cycle through again. Sure. And Someday when you're in 06, you'll be going through the same thing on a different perspective. And then, and then the, last, the last part of just kind of looking at the different career field and the health of it is we currently also have about 100 people doing the RPAs that are from the math community, and, and they're projected to come back over the next few years as well as the RPA community picks that up as a normal pipeline than necessarily taking a, a math or CAF person. So that'll help us with, with our numbers as we gain those people back. Kind of this kind of brings it full circle with a comment that you had earlier about uh, folks being scored on the on the board. Um, we talk about guys who've been in two or three different NWSs that haven't made instructor yet. I know personally several uh, folks who were two or three years into their MWS hadn't quite made instructor and they were non-vol to an RPA. Right. Had to do that for two or three years or four years, and then they uh, finally came back to their MWS or in some cases went to a different one. Um, Potentially, through no fault of their own, they never upgraded to instructor. If they did, it was only in the RPA community. Yeah. 
how is that catching up to those officers uh, and you know in their records and their performance reports and in their promotions? Okay, well, I'll touch on two parts. One, you said, hey, they weren't able to upgrade to instructor except for in the RPA community. Okay, that's an instructor. Okay. So that counts. RPA is a major weapon system. Um, because of the amount of people that we're putting into the white jets, and you get guys that depart the MAF community as an aircraft commander and then spend three or four years flying a white jet, uh, there, there's a certain realization that, okay, that wasn't their fault. That's what the system has done. They're, they're an instructor in AATC. That's also an instructor. So we're starting to give more and more credit for ATC instructor duty versus just MWS. But in the case of the RPA, the RPA is a weapon system of its own. So make an instructor is make an instructor. The, the real part is, and, and, and everybody that's on those boards have been around long enough to kind of tell the difference. When you're looking at someone's record and they go from co-pilot to aircraft commander and they spend a couple years at a location and then they go to ATC or they go to an RPA and they kind of start over again and they work their way back up, you go, okay, that makes sense to me. What, what you hold against them isn't, hey, I went someplace for two years and didn't make instructor in two years because I started from new. But I've seen people's records where they were an aircraft commander in a C-130 for six years. Now, if I told you, knowing very little about the C-130 community, that they were an aircraft commander for six years, would you think of that as being a good pilot or not? I'd assume they either went to NIF for a long time or probably not the best pilot in the squadron. Right. That's... That's the difference, right? When you're right. looking at a record, you can't come up with an explanation for why that happened. And that's the beauty, of, like, the, and this kind of crosses some of our conversations, but the, the new two-line PRF, those are things that, that senior readers can put in there. Individual was to NIF for two years, did a wonderful job until got back on flying duty. Please don't hold that against them. Okay, now I have a reason for why that happened. But, but if I've got no reason and the senior reader doesn't give a strong push or an explanation, then, then I'm left to assume that, okay, that person was an aircraft commander for six years and didn't make instructor. Why? It, I, I like how all this ties together. So we talked about uh, promotions. We talked about um, the, the math DT board, and, and now we're talking about the, the, the manning and, and, like you said, the, the bill that we have to pay as, as a math to send people back to. Um, be an instructor, whether it's a UPT or ROTC or whatever, all of this kind of comes together. But what it sounds like is the Air Force is doing a better job of sending people where they're needed, but not necessarily holding back against them. Whereas in the past, I would argue that if we sent some, someone to RPAs, that might be held against them in the future. Um, would you say they were doing a better job of that, or, or do you think that was never a problem to begin with? Um. Yes and no. So, so in the past, it probably was a problem, but it was a deliberate problem. So we knew that not a lot of people volunteered for RPAs. So did we send our best and brightest to RPAs? Probably not. Only because they're being non-volved, and why would we send our best and brightest to something they don't want to do? So that assumption, right or wrong, was probably held against somebody as, as you looked at a record. Uh, but now, I'll tell you, it's shifted. I mean, in the year 2000, when we were sending people to RPAs, there were people kicking and screaming. Now we got cadets at the academy and ROTC that are wanting to do this as their primary job. So it's just a whole different world today. So now you recognize that, hey, the people that are doing the RPAs, they are not the ones that were just kind of shunned to that community. There are folks that are very sharp, very intelligent, very capable, and then that shows in, in their record. Um, so some of it's a little bit of the, the what comes first, the, the chicken or the egg, and that conversation. Uh, the other part is, you know, you've got people that are, 
wing commanders that have spent 20 or 30 years, depending on where they're on their career field, um, they, they've lived it. They, they know the difference. And that's really what it comes down to is when you look at things, is, is there an explanation for why somebody is where they're at? And if there's a good explanation for it, great, that makes sense. Needs the Air Force, don't hurt the individual. Um, but if the answer is, you know, hey, they didn't upgrade to instructor, or, hey, this or that happened for very deliberate reasons in a negative way, then, or if you're left wondering, right? That's the worst place you really want to leave somebody on any sort of a board, is just wondering why. So recently the uh, white jet fill from the MAF uh, was kind of done through the, the MAF DT board. Uh, can you talk about some of the changes on, on what we've done to fill our white jet bills? Sure, the, the, the chief of staff basically directed that developmental teams will need to approve all the officers going to the white jets um, to, to kind of go in line with that instructor. Hey, we're gonna call an instructor something as, as being important, then we better screen for it a little bit. Um, and the way that the AMC A3 has lined it up is he's really put people into three categories. And he said, if you're an instructor in a major weapon system, you're already qualified, right? Unless for some reason a squadron commander says, hey, not the right person for ATC for whatever various reason. And that's kind of the exception to the rule. So if you're an instructor in an MWS, you're in the, the mix for your name getting picked out of the hat. Um, so you got your endorsed IPs and then kind of your IPs that for whatever reason squadron doesn't endorse. And then there are non-IPs that get pushed. So there's some people that are aircraft commanders, maybe even a, a first pilot or co-pilot that's upgrading to aircraft commander that within a year of PCSing will be a senior aircraft commander. And because of their maturity or desire to go back to ATC or whatever various reason that the squadron commander is looking at, the squadron commander puts their name in the hat and says, hey, MAFDT, look at this individual. And, and just, I think they're good enough. I think they should be able to do this, but screen it. And that's really where the DT came in. And in this case, it wasn't a score like uh, the other vectors in the sense of six points to 10 points. It was a yes or a no. Um, and, and General James said go through all these records of people that are not instructors already that could potentially go to ATC assignments and just let us know if there's something there. Um, out of that, there were a few that, that we pulled out. Uh, in some cases, it wasn't that they were bad people it was just, there, there was one individual that, that I can think of in particular that was still a co-pilot at Birmingham, wasn't getting a lot of flying at Birmingham, so when you try to figure out a year from now how much experience would they have even as a brand new aircraft commander, because they were upgrading aircraft commander, was that really be the person that you then want to throw into an ATC assignment? And in that case, the answer was just not yet, maybe next year, give the person a little bit more time. Um, other cases, you would dig through and find something in the record and say, hey, for whatever reason, the squadron commander maybe missed this, and this is a reason that we wouldn't want this person being a part of this instructor corps. So as far as timing of assignments, I, uh, I flew white jets first in the C-21, and I've done back-to-back -back NWS assignments in the C-5. I, I was told when I got to the C-5, I probably shouldn't do another C-5 assignment after that. If I, if I wanted my career to progress, I probably needed to go to staff. Um, I've also heard people say that if you start an MWS, you really need to Phoenix over to another MWS instead of go to UPT. And I kind of feel like that mindset is changing. I feel like now it's a little more acceptable to whether you go to UPT or whether you do the three straight flying assignments, 
maybe that's not ideal for everyone, but it seems like the mindset that you have to do two different MWSs and then go to staff for the best chance of command, for instance. It seems like that's changing. No, that's in some ways it's still there, but I'll, but I'll tell you, I did four flying assignments before going to staff. So going from flying assignment to flying assignment to flying assignment isn't going to hurt you. Uh, it really comes down, it sounds cliche, and I know that there'll be cynics out there, but it really does come down to the grow where you're planted. If you get put someplace and you do well, it doesn't matter if you did back-to-back -back type assignments. In general, the entire time you're CGO, they're looking to make certain that one, you're really good at the thing that it is that they got you to do. So you've got to work your way through co-pilot, you've got to work your way through aircraft commander, you've got to work your way through instructor, right? And that just takes a certain amount of flying time to do. Um, eventually, once you start to pin on field grade officer, that's the time that, okay, it's, it's time to be a staff officer. Because you're doing more than just flying the airplane. You're trying to figure out how your organization fits into that larger organization. In some ways, there's no better way than to kind of go work for someone else and see it from their foxhole. So when you're up there working on the staff and you're seeing how the other pieces come together, then that's why the Air Force brings you back, usually as a senior major or a junior lieutenant colonel to the flying level. Because then as you're running and managing those squadrons, you at least have a fighting chance at understanding what's going on in the organizations on, a, on the org chart above you. Uh, and I go back to some of those examples we gave earlier in other discussions on, you know, I've had a friend of mine, you know, General Canlis, that went to be the C-21 schoolhouse commander. That's not the, the number one squadron command gig, but it was what he wanted to do. He enjoyed it. He did very well at it. And guess what? Now he's, now he's a one-star general. I had another friend of mine that got out of the 135, got into uh, uh, doing a C-12 in Columbia, which everybody said will destroy his career. Then he followed that up with going to the Talsi back in the day when it was called the Talsi. Everybody said that'll ruin your career, but his wife was from um, Sacramento and, and he wanted to you know, kind of pay one back to his wife and allow her to be at Travis close to her family up in Sacramento. Then because of his time in South America, he ended up working at uh, AF South. And AF South isn't one of those crazy staff jobs that everybody's like, oh, that's the premier staff job to get, right? But he had the background for it. Then. He rolled out of that, and they said, hey, we're going to have you do ROTC, and you're going to do ROTC in Puerto Rico because you've worked at AF South and you've worked in Columbia, so you've got that sort of uh, background. Um, and he went to do ROTC. He followed it up as a lieutenant colonel and said, I want to go back now instead of the Talsi, it's the CRW. I'm a graduated squadron commander, lieutenant colonel, but I'm, I want to go back to Travis. And he went back to Travis, and he was going to be an AMOS tanker planner. And that's right when they stood up the MSASs, and the MSAS, the Mobility Support Advisory Squadron at Travis, focuses on Central and South America. So as they stood that squadron up, the group commander said, I don't have a deputy group commander, and this squadron over here has got a graduated ROTC dead commander, lieutenant colonel. Guess what? You're no longer a tanker planner. You're now a deputy group commander. And then the guy pinned on 06, and he went to be the Brazilian air attache. So I, I, I just can't stress that folks that are out there thinking that it's a cookie cutter and if I don't do X, Y, or Z, life is over. No, do whatever letters of the alphabet you want to do, but do them well. Trust me, good help is hard to find, and the folks out there looking, they'll find you if you've got a, a reputation to match. That's awesome. Sir, how does this process now with uh, some of the white jet and the vetting of individuals that we send to white jets, how is that process now going to intersect with the uh, the squadron commander's normal ability to, to go into my vector and to kind of bid and, and, 
can to bid on those individuals. And so that's that's actually board. a great question because I think there's a lot of confusion even at the squadron commander level. So the idea is to build this pool. So now the MAFDT has said, hey, General James has said, look, every single instructor in the MAF community, their name is in the pool unless the squadron commander has intentionally pulled them out. Every single person that a squadron commander brought forward that wasn't an instructor that we vetted, their name is in the pool. So now that's the pool that AFPC is using. So now it's just the standard process that squadron commanders have. The only difference is they're just going to take names from that pool versus the greater Air Force. Okay. But the, the rest of the process kicks in there exactly the same. Yes, sir. All that's good stuff. I, I, we talked about all the different assignments, talked about promotions, the, um, the math DT board. But uh, as, as we wrap this up, I'll, I'll let you close with any comments uh, for the listeners. If, if you have any questions that weren't addressed today, just check out the podcast comments, and we'll have a link where you can post questions. And then when we do the next follow-up podcast, we'll try to answer as many as we can. But, sir, I'll let you close it out. Uh, all, all these podcasts, and I realize they'll get, they'll get broken up and put on the, on the page, but they all come at a desire to kind of remove the mystery. You know, when you hear the term MAFDT, people have no idea what it is. When you hear terms like what's going on in the white jet community, there's rumors, there's hearsay, um, and, and there'll probably be people that even listen to what I say today and they'll just take a snippet and maybe incorrectly understand it or incorrectly apply it, and then that'll spread wildfire. And the next thing you know, there'll be rumors all over the base about you know something that was said, right? So just one, take a big deep breath. Two, do the things that you want to do and do them well. Um, and if you got questions, talk to your squadron commanders in order to kind of dig through these a little bit deeper. Uh, and at the same time, as we've got this desire to, to pass this information to you so it's not just hidden off and only the execs hear about it and, and that sort of thing. Um, use the comment function. Say, hey, I would like to hear more about whatever it is. And we'll try to find the time to, to sit down and, and walk through that. That way we're developing these series to the things that you want to hear about instead of the things we think you want to hear about. Great. Thanks. We'll wrap it up. Thanks for listening.